the weather report from Speed News. And of course, there are regular weather updates here on Speed News throughout the day. And I'm glad to hear that the weather's going to be good this weekend because someone who's certain to be enjoying the good weather is Captain Tom Moore. The 99-year-old pensioner completing laps of his garden to raise millions of pounds for the NHS. We go live to his garden now. Here's our reporter, Rip Porter. Thank you. I'm here at a safe distance, of course, outside the house. And uh, I'm here today to see a bit of a morale boost for Captain Moore. It's been discovered that he's a fan of Formula One motor racing. So to keep his spirits up and help him with the last few laps, the Williams team have arranged for one of their cars to drive alongside the pensioner for these last few laps. Here they go now. Oh, it appears that the car is struggling to keep up with him. Oh dear. Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. I'm at home in London. I'm Gareth. He's at home in a basement in West London and he's Zog. Hello. And he's at home in a completely different and more fashionable part of North London and he's Richard Porter. Hello. I like the way that you two have managed to blur your backgrounds in the modern Skypey way. Are you hiding anything behind you that I shouldn't see? Well, there are quite a lot of car parts behind me. Whatever vehicle you've got, out front at the moment, Gareth. I'm pretty sure none of them are going to fit, so I'm not too anxious about... Plus, some of them, to be honest, are pretty well-used parts. There's an alternator that probably doesn't work. That's what's behind me right now. Richard, you're in your working office, I can see. Yeah, I'm blur, and you can see our picture of out and centre behind me, which is not there just for this. That's where it lives at the moment, but it's because it's quite big, and I don't know where else to put it. But yeah, this is my office, which is full, you can't really see, but it's full of car-related slash important business things lots of books and magazines which my wife is constantly asking if I really need underlined and the answer is yes I do and so I'm not getting rid of them but she has been working up here quite a lot recently and she finds it claustrophobic I think because there's so many things it's also she just comes down and takes the mick at me because she'll just go what's this book here I go, well obviously it's the complete history of the Lotus of Land it says on the front but why are any of those books really boring books of car trivia? Well, no, I'm glad you raised that, Zog. You see, they're not per se, but I used these books to write my very own book of boring car trivia, which is out now on Amazon, paperback or ebook. The paperback, I should warn you, will take some time to arrive because Amazon, rather unreasonably, say that a book of boring car trivia is not essential. So it'll take a few days, maybe even a few weeks to get to you. But there is an ebook as well, which can arrive on a Kindle or a Kindle app immediately. And that's what I've been doing myself up here. Probably why my wife was like, you really need to have a clear up. Because I just kept pulling books out, you know, as I had half remember something interesting about the Austin Metro. Interesting inverted commas, obviously. And then I've got a book about the Metro. So I dig out that book and, and have a quick look and double check the fact and then stick it in my book so that's what i've been busying myself with when i'm not being a teacher slash carer to my children and sort of trying to hold down some other paid work your book which is called what richard it's called a medium-sized book of boring car trivia and i don't believe there's anything boring in that book at all i think it's exactly the sort of content that zog and i would eat up with aplomb i think you 
probably worse. Absolutely. Apart from that, that I'm expecting to like to enjoy the content. That's a good, solid, honest title for a book that tells you exactly what you're getting. I was quite pleased with myself, if I'm honest. At the end, very, very late in the day, when I'd laid it all out and you know I'd finished writing it, because the trouble is, it's just there was a point where I was like, I've got to stop writing this because I kept remembering or being told or looking up something and finding accidentally another piece of car trivia, and I'd sort of said to myself, this shouldn't be too long, this book, because it'll get genuinely very tedious so it's like just over 100 pages about 16,000 words so it's, it's a good kind of leave it by the loose sort of book but just late in the day when I was then designing the cover I changed the name it was originally going to be a sniff petrol book of boring car trivia and I thought yeah it's got sniff petrol on the front already and a medium-sized book I just thought that does then fit in with the general tone of just be slightly factual but I'm waiting for somebody to go oh, it's not really medium-sized though is it because <laughs> I was going to call it a small book and I thought well that's not a very good sales pitch so it's people go oh well it's small oh I don't want that if it's small I won't bother I won't bother paying £4.50 for it can I recommend that you call it the medium to medium large book of I think that ship may have sailed Gareth I think the uh, I'm, I'm guessing <laughs> that the title decision may already have been taken it's kind of locked down now that it's in print as it were or published but there's a very nice guy called Keith Jones who's another car journalist who is uh, yeah it's forgotten more than I will ever know. And I sent him a proof copy of it because I thought if Keith reads it and doesn't go, no, 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 that's not right. Or well, you've got that completely off beat. Then I know I'm okay. And he only picked up on one howler, which was I've got the number of an Alfa Romeo wrong and which would have caused me so much nerd shame. I couldn't live with myself. So thankfully Keith spotted that. But otherwise he said, that's okay. I think everything checks out pretty much. But then he chucked in, he went, just if you're interested, I've got a couple of extra bits of information about a couple of the facts in the book. And one of them I couldn't fit in without rejigging the whole page. And I was just sort of running out of time and patience to do it. So I just noted it down in the file in my phone where I had all the facts for the first book. And then I remembered something else as I was doing it. And I wrote that down and I was like, here we go. I've started volume bloody two already. Excellent. Fantastic. I'm making a rock my own back. But yeah, that's what I've been doing. It's been a good sort of lockdown project to keep myself entertained. It's just trying to think of the most boring half-remembered facts I can. And then in the interest of vague professionalism, try and cross-check them in my reference library, which is this room that I'm sitting in now. Which is, I should add, a very small room, so it's why my wife gets so claustrophobic in here, because it's full of car books. While we're talking about our blurred backgrounds and what else we're doing, can I just point out that behind me in the blur is the Gareth Jones Live logo, because every Friday I've been doing a live stream, nothing to do with cars, really. It's about any old stuff, largely my television and rock and roll career. And if we're plugging stuff that we're doing, if you want to see my live stream, I'm not talking to you two, because you've probably see enough of me but anyone else who listens to gareth jones or speedy might want to join me for an hour's drinking and nonsense on a friday it's 9 p.m on my youtube channel all the information's on my website garethjones.tv there you go it's rare that i do a plug for my stuff isn't it anyway guys i'm pleased that we've managed to get together to talk about road cars which aren't in the healthiest of states at the moment Thanks to the coronavirus, there have been a few deaths in terms of car sales. The SMMT released their figures for March, and it's something like 40% down on what it is normally. That's terrifying, isn't it? Are we doomed? Are people never going to buy cars again now? One's first thought is that obviously this is a temporary thing and once we get through this, as with other areas of the economy, you'll expect some kind of return to normality. But also I think this is one of those areas that 
maybe you have to wonder how much of a return to normality there will be because people will be going through an extended period where they're living a very different kind of lifestyle not using their vehicles as much at the same time that i'm sure we're all looking forward to our first post-corona road trip you bet I can't help thinking that this is the kind of very significant period that could have a significant longer term impact on the industry and that a return to normality is perhaps not what we should expect, not with any confidence. Are you suggesting that as we get used to this idea of not driving everywhere, we're probably not going to want to do it, or generally, not us personally, but the general populace are going to be less inclined to drive in future. It will change their lifestyle, their habits on a permanent basis. Most of all, I'm saying I just don't know, but I'm saying that this is the kind of very big worldwide event that has all kinds of consequences, a lot of which you just can't foresee. Just off the top of my head, a lot of people are going to be getting used to not using their cars as much as they used to. A lot of people are going to be getting used to adapting to working from home where they can. There are clearly going to be significant economic impacts on all levels of the auto industry from you know small suppliers of parts to big manufacturers to companies involved in financing car purchases and who knows how those things are all going to shake out and how the interplay of those things is going to shake out well ford themselves ford motor company have created some sort of three-month holiday if you've got a ford finance loan at the moment ford are giving you a holiday from repayments for that they're sort of putting people who are buying cars through them on furlough and i remember a few years ago richard you probably will have heard about this as well that the ford motor company is largely a finance company they make more money from their loans and finances than they do from actual sales and manufacturing of cars so in the case of the ford motor company they're financing their their loans and car manufacturing are inextricably linked and it could do real damage to them i guess that is probably true certainly in the us it was definitely true of gm when they got into trouble the finance bit was the only part that ever made any money the problem is it's just well, it's a multi-pronged problem, isn't it? I mean, I was told of at least one car factory here that closed. You had to finally stop making cars, partly because they just had nowhere to put them. You can't keep the machine churning out massive lumps of metal if you've nowhere to store them. So I think, you know, probably the old airfields of Britain are absolutely chocker with brand new cars and they're going to have to clear those. Same problem that the oil industry is having. Yeah. I was about to say exactly the same, Zog. Yeah, they literally, yeah. I mean, I say literally, they literally can't give oil away at the moment and they've got to pay people to take the oil away for them. It would be terrific if that meant that we could just pop down to the local shell station and get a full tank of gas and 100 quid but I don't think that's how it's going to work. (laughs) In the meantime, the car manufacturing companies in the UK are trying to keep themselves active in some way. The Jaguar Land Rover, they employ 40,000 people globally, which is incredible. And 20,000 of those staff have been put on furlough at the moment. That's a serious wound, isn't it? I mean, I know they're getting the money back from the government for the staff on furlough. But trying to recover from that sort of downtime, everyone knows when you put your computer to sleep, often when you try and reboot it, it doesn't come back. It's going to be the same like that for the car industry, Richard, isn't it? Yeah, well, first of all, you've got to worry 
that they can pull back out of this. And it's not just up to them. It's about them getting their component supply back. And when they source bits from all over the world, it's going to be tricky. There's some really sort of interesting kind of freakonomics-y things around this. Like when China started to lock down, apparently there was a shortage of shipping containers because they were all in China and they weren't leaving again. And normally it's a sort of free and constant flow of those big metal containers that go on cargo ships. And when suddenly they're all bottlenecking somewhere, part of what's made everything start to go a bit wobbly quite quickly is because we exist in a world that is become incredibly skilled at doing just-in-time delivery. Yeah, right. Yep. And when that starts to falter, I mean, that's the thing about, you know, everyone was getting a bit hot under the collar about hoarding of loo rolls and stuff like that. And I'm sure there were some idiots who were doing that. But a lot of it was just that it's such a finely tuned supply chain that it doesn't take much to, you know, another example is tea bags. Suddenly there's no tea bags in supermarkets. And it's like, it's not necessarily because everyone's hoarding tea bags. It's because everybody is drinking tea at home that they would have had in the office. And, you know, I think we've all worked with people who can scull like six or seven cups of tea in a day. And only one of those would have been their first one in the morning at home. Well, so suddenly you've got six cups of tea being drunk at home. And meanwhile, there are all these poor lonely tea bags that would have been dunked into boiling water in an office and now just sitting on a shelf in an office kitchen because there's nobody there. So it's just the fact that your local Sainsbury's has a sort of good predictive model of how many tea bags it would normally sell in a week. And it gets knocked out of kilter because someone's buying a box twice, three times as much as they would normally would. And it's all things like that. But the current was going to be the same because as we know, I mean, the current is a great example of just-in-time stuff. But when it's like your alloy wheels are coming from India or somewhere and you've got some inlet manifolds coming from Poland and you have, I don't know, carpets coming from China maybe, this is all stuff that goes on. And then you've got to wait for those countries to open their borders and those companies making them to go back to work. It's going to be really slow because the car is the end product, isn't it? The people who make the carpets, as long as they can get their raw materials, they can start. But then the people who are on the line at Solihull waiting to assemble Range Rovers and they'd every single part of that Range Rover there. There's thousands of them and they've come from all over the world potentially. So it's going to be quite slow to start up and I think that's going to be quite painful in itself. Meanwhile, they're trying to clear all the stuff off airfields. Yeah. I think it's going to be very slow to start up because there's a wave of a coronavirus outbreak working its way around the world. India and Africa are behind Europe and North America in terms of the impact it's having there. So the point at which we're starting to recover, they will be at their zenith at the worst point for them. And that's going to throttle Europe and North America's ability to start manufacturing again. It's a worldwide problem. That's the thing, isn't it? It's unlike anything we've experienced before. It's not a local thing, as the industry isn't and hasn't been for many years. It's likely that there'll be issues around maybe sort of consumer confidence in buying expensive new vehicles. Uh, Mm. Beyond all those issues to do with lack of resilience and lack of headroom in all kinds of supply chains and systems. There could just be a lot of unforeseen consequences of this, things you just can't really predict, can't foresee. So, Richard, who would you say is the type of car manufacturer most in good shape to bounce back first? Will it be, you know, little people like, I don't know, Ariel, or will it be Toyota? Do they make everything themselves? Do they rely on suppliers? Is there a type of car company that will fare better? 
I don't think there is because, first of all, I don't think anyone really makes stuff themselves. I mean, that's not the model. That's not how it works these days, is it? I don't know if they still do, but Tesla used to make their own seats. And it was generally considered to be one of those things where they sort of decided they could do something better than anyone else. And actually, it's not necessarily the best way. You know, you're just outsourcing it to someone else who specializes in seats probably means they're more efficient at doing it. But I can't think that there's any car company in the world that makes an awful lot of stuff in-house. No, I mean, they might make a sort of larger sub-assembly, but the bits that go to make that it's amazing where they come from i think that the column stalks in the bugatti veyron they were absurdly expensive because i think they were made of titanium or something but i also think they were made in the uk and as was a dashboard i think the big chunks of the veyron came from uk suppliers just because they happened to have the skill set to make a particularly high quality item out of a not normal car interior material so I mean, that's an extreme example. But yeah, you'd think, oh, Bugatti, well, if they want expensive column stalks, they'll just sort of hand chisel them in-house. But no, quite the opposite. They just want to keep outsourcing as much as they can for the people who know exactly what to do and how to make it the best. On the issue of how much different companies might make in-house, I have a feeling that maybe Hyundai produce a remarkably large percentage of their vehicles in-house or with companies that they own, I think. Actually, Hyundai were one of the first manufacturers to start building again in Europe recently, weren't they? They've just announced the reopening of one of their Central European factories. I wonder if that's one of the reasons. Maybe. I don't know. I would be very surprised if they did. And like I said, you can't build a car if you haven't got every single one of the thousands of bits. I mean, I suppose you could leave some trim off and put it on later or the right kind of wheels. But fundamentally, it's stuff like, you know, if you haven't got your ABS module, that's probably going to be a difficult thing to retrofit because it's all integrated into the build process. And your ABS module, I'll guarantee it's coming from Bosch yeah, yeah. or someone like that. It's not coming from Hyundai themselves. I think maybe Hyundai certainly in Korea, they make their own steel. So they've got that thing. But there's nobody who, I, as far as I'm aware, is replicating that thing they used to do at the larder factory in Toliati, where it's like, you know, very raw ore goes in one end and a car pops out the other. I just don't think that has been agreed as a pretty inefficient business model when, when there are other ways of doing it now. Yeah, I may be slightly conflating, as you say, that sort of aspect of owning a lot of the production of the basic materials, raw materials and major components with a lot of the smaller bits. And yeah, of course, yeah, there are going to be a lot of bits that will have to come from it from somewhere else, I'm sure. You've given me a good idea there. I think now is the time for us three to form a startup where we can start manufacturing cars before anybody else by 3D printing them. All we need is one source of the plastic that we use to 3D print, and let's build, uh, print an entire car. You know, the tyres can be plastic, the engine can be plastic, it's bound to work. We're behind the curve, it's already being done. Is it the Shinga 21C has a lot of 3D printed components? I think you're right, Zog. American hypercar. Oh, yes. Launch, you the, know, um, so that, that sort of one plus one thing. Yeah. Doesn't that have a very high proportion of 3D it printed does. components? Yes, it does. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and not just yeah. 3D printed panels, but I believe also 3D printed metal components. Apparently so, yeah. They're doing some pretty tricksy stuff out of their place in the US. I've never heard that company said out loud before, I think. That's why I was thrown off. It's C-Z-I-N-G-R, isn't it? Singer. Singer. I took a stab at it. Zinger. 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 I think 
Ching. Anyway, I don't yeah, know what he means. <laughs> yes, loads of 3D printing on that, apparently. There you go. We've worked out the model for a car manufacturer that's going to be ahead of the curve. So that means if that's the only car available in 12 months' time when we recover from this, everyone, instead of driving around in you know, Fords and Hyundais and Vauxhalls, they're going to be driving around in an American supercar because that's all they can buy. I like this brave new world. Yeah, thing is, though, 3D printing is not cheap. When people talk about 3D printing kind of revolutionising the world and the impact it can have on how we buy or consume stuff. The catch there is that 3D printing is expensive. Mass producing things in factories where you stamp them out, injection, mould them, do that kind of stuff, that's cheap. Mm. But 3D printing stuff is expensive. It's worth the expense and the hassle if you need that one little weird widget at home in the next couple of hours. But if you need 10,000 of them over the next month, you don't 3D print them. Mm. Let me tell you, my 2D colour Epson printer at home costs a ruddy fortune to run. And just trying to get that thing to print up a birthday card for my children is an achievement, let alone trying to print up a ruddy car. Uh, guten Tag, everyone, and welcome to the BMW Research and Development Center, where you can see behind me our advanced engineering facility is about to complete the world's first fully 3D printed car. As you can see, the printer is now creating every single component of the vehicle. The interior, the engine, even the bodywork and the grill. And here it is now, the world's first fully 3D printed car, a BMW X6. Hey mate, I think something's gone wrong with your printer. No, it's supposed to look like that, sadly. We're talking about death on Gareth Jones on Speed at the moment. I try not to giggle because death's a very serious, serious subject. Arguably the most serious subject in life. But when it comes to the death of car companies, I think we can be less precious about it. And in March, Bristol Cars after I think something like 73 years and many of those on some form of life support in a care home finally stopped breathing. Is this something that we should all mourn? Richard, how do you feel about Bristol cars? The truth is they've sort of no longer been with us for a while. They haven't made any new cars for years. What's been carrying on is the service and restoration business which used to be in a fantastically dusty and scruffy little place on the main A4 roads out of London. They moved it to a sort of industrial unit. Apparently it's a bit swishier and more modern. That's probably where it all went wrong. Bristol shouldn't be anything to do with swishier modern. What's a shame is one of my long-running sort of semi-dream cars would be an old Bristol 411 the sort of late 60s, early 70s style, 410 or 411, but modernised a little bit. Not like, you know, made electric or anything, but what Bristol could do is you could return your car to them and they would upgrade the engine and 
you know, for very old cars, they would sort of do things like if you really wanted, they put electric windows in a stereo, a modern stereo and stuff like that. And they could do a very definition, I think, of a sympathetic modernization. And the fact it was done effectively by the factory and potentially by some of the people who actually built it made it absolutely authentic and brilliant. And I always hankered after one of those. There's other places will do it for you, but I just like the authenticity and presumably the reassuring expensiveness of taking it back to the factory. Let's be clear here, Richard, you're talking about the 411, not the 412, which looked like it was made out of shoe boxes that was a horrible looking yeah, car yeah the, the 412 not such a pretty thing funny enough sorry to go back to my book of boring car trivia but something i discovered that somebody on twitter told me which i believe to be absolutely true is you know modern cars since the 90s any car with frameless door glass when you grab the door handle on the outside the glass drops very slightly to clear the seals and it means that then they can bury themselves back in the seals you get a tighter seal it means the frameless doors don't start to pull themselves away from the door at speed as they used to do yeah and that was first seen on i don't know it was on tt's in the late 90s i think it was on the jack xk in the mid 90s and i think even maybe the bindery 8 series might be the first car that had it in them sort of just at the end of the 80s but that system was invented by bristol in 1975 for the 412 Wow, they were futuristic once before they became fuddy-duddy. They were futuristic. I mean, apart from everything else, very few cars back then would have had electric windows, which make that system possible. Yeah. Bristol's did. And they introduced that very clever idea. They could have patented it, but they couldn't afford to. So it was just allowed to park for a bit and then suddenly come back with a plan once loads of cars had electric windows in the late 80s and into the 90s so yeah they were sort of quite clever but i don't know there's something very appealing about those old ones and even the fighting remember the fighting with the gullwing doors that when the dodge viper v10 that was great yeah i've driven one of those and it was good i mean it was very um i don't know how would i describe it I mean, I suppose good would be overstating it. It was charming. Anachronistic, I think. Yes, but I've driven a Viper, and apart from the ACR one, which I did have a brief go, which I did, the engine was tremendous in that, but normal Vipers, that engine was, which, um, again, another geeky fact from my book, the Dodge Viper engine was developed for Dodge by Lamborghini, because Chrysler owned them at the time. But it was still a bit of a slogger of an engine. It didn't really rev very nicely. And in the Bristol Fighter, it felt a bit more lively. And you could leave it, and this was their party piece. They insisted I did this when I test drove it. You could put it into, I think it was fourth, and then set off because it had so much torque. Marvellous. So it's made it very easy going. It's just nice. Great view out. You know, there's gullwing doors there for a reason, which is to make the windscreen pillars more upright so you got a better view out. And then the only way they could get the packaging was to do gullwing doors to make it all sort of work. And, but a very glassy car. So you got a great view out. I liked it. I think they were charming. And I think the company was charming. I mean, I always thought they were a company that I think for a lot of car enthusiasts, they sort of held a place in our hearts that was frankly rather out of all proportion to their real world relevance and importance in a lot of ways. But because they were just so tremendously anachronistic, charming in their wonderful, powerful British way. Mm. Yeah, we will miss them. You know that fighter, we used to have a joke on Top Gear that the one in the showroom, their one showroom in Kensington, it used to be a different coloured one every so often. And we were joking, as it turns out we weren't too far off, but we genuinely were joking at the time. We thought this was just a gag that it would change colour and they were just respraying it. And you'd be able to saw it in half like a tree and count the layers of paint. <laughs> 
sure that possibly was true because when you asked them when the company was still extant as a car maker you'd ask them how many fighters they'd sold and they would always fudge it but they would always say something like well just to give you an indication chassis number 21 is in build at the moment but they'd neglect to admit that they were skipping numbers on the chassis yeah they started with chassis number 18 <laughs> yeah there were nine nine men Zog you live not far from the Bristol showroom don't you, you yeah I'll probably see it in your travels when we were allowed to drive on a fairly regular basis yeah, passed it off. I don't suppose you've been passed there in the last month and seen is it boarded up no, I haven't. As it happened, I haven't driven that way for a good few weeks. No, I wish I could tell you, but nothing to report. I seem to remember some vague story from a long time ago, possibly from the 70s. I don't know if either of you two are aware of this, about something to do with the London mob or the London mafia trying to buy out the Bristol showroom. And they bought the entire block apart from the Bristol showroom. Bristol would not sell. So they had all the floors above it and waged this campaign which went on for a number of months where scaff bars and bricks and things were accidentally falling through the ceiling and damaging Bristol's cars below. Do you guys know anything about that story? Do you remember that at all? I haven't heard that one, no. I'm not sure that's true because I'm pretty certain they didn't own the showroom. Ah. Because I asked the guy who owned it after Tony Crook, the infamous owner of the company through its most close as ever got to a heyday. Crook by name, businessman by nature? Well, an eccentric gentleman, certainly. <laughs> uh, but Toby Silverson was the guy who had it after him, who has made his fortune in aviation spares and was a very affable guy. Because I went to interview him and I'm sure he said, oh, you know, we don't own this place. If we did, the company would be in a lot better financial shape because I think the first thing they could do is flog it and go somewhere else. But, you know, as long as whoever actually owned it was prepared to lease it to them. I mean, that's the thing. Bristol were almost like the perfect analogue of a genuine British aristocrat, more so than Rolls-Royce or Bentley would be because as everyone Britain knows true toffs are always broke because they're constantly having to repair leaking roofs on these enormous piles that they've inherited from many generations. Broken insane. Yeah, and they're always a bit scruffy as well. And that's the thing. The <laughs> Bristol showroom was a little bit scruffy. The Bristol service centre, I went there once as well. That was always a bit scruffy. It's like they were the toff of car companies in that respect. And so, yeah, they couldn't afford to move anywhere else. I, I don't know what the story was with the rent. I'm guessing maybe, you know, it, sort of, it was set in the 50s or 60s and they'd managed to keep increases down to a manageable level. But I'm almost certain that they didn't own that corner plot in Kensington, but they had a long-term lease on it. Mm. Also, it's a hotel around it, I think, actually. I don't know how the mob would be you know, <laughs> in a hotel room upstairs dropping stuff on cars, but I don't know whether it's always a hotel. It's a pretty huge building, isn't it? It goes back and along, but I think the end came when they changed the sign on the showroom. You know, it used to always famously have those individual letters, and the joke was that the company was called Bisto Ars because the lights were always going out. <laughs> and again, Toby Silverton told me that there was a fiendishly complicated wiring setup behind the scenes where basically each individual letter had its own circuit and fuse and it was always overloading and blowing different fuses and that's why the letters would go out randomly but he did also say well, if it's something good we leave it for a bit so he was sort of in on the joke but they took that sign down when they stopped selling new cars and that showroom just became a place for them to sort of keep trading in their old cars second hand they eventually changed the sign to some sort of like you know really faux swirly font like the old badges on the cars and it was just not the same I missed the fact that you could drive past there at night and it, it might say Istel Ars or something it was part of the fun of the whole company so we'll miss the showroom we'll miss seeing it but Zog will anyone truly miss Bristol cars? yeah absolutely that said 
the ones that are on the road at the moment are going to stay on the road for a long time to come. I would guess that in terms of the proportion of cars built over their history still on the road, they're probably one of the highest ranking companies. Yeah, because I think, again, because the service centre was around for so long, and there are independent specialists as well, but I suppose at Bristol, they're not that complicated, really. No, absolutely not. So they're like a sort of good pair of leather brogues. You can have them resold and fettled and generally kept going for years and years, if you so choose. So they are good, like an old tweed jacket. They're quite rock and roll as well, aren't they? Absolutely. Yeah, Liam Gallagher had one. Liam Gallagher likes them. Um, Branson was a big fan. And a chap I know called John Curd, who is a promoter of most London rock and roll shows for 30 or 40 years, even still to this day, has got one in his garage, which is his daily drive. Ah. Why do they appeal to rock and rollers, I wonder? It's just their oddball. I suppose there's the eccentricity angle, you know, they're a bit different, they're a bit left field, yep. and they're also elegant in a slightly odd, rakish way. I think those things tend to fit quite well with your rock and roll folks. Yeah, and they're different, and they're very expensive, but they're somehow, they're not flash, are they? And I suppose for a certain sort of person, I mean, it's weird to think that Liam Gallagher wouldn't want a flash car but sort of I suppose in a way he wouldn't the same way he just wears a parka he could wear a smarter overcoat but he chooses not to <laughs> he's a dressed down sort of bloke and a Bristol sort of I suppose like a good pair of brogues it goes with most things but it's not going to shout too loudly about it Paul Smith the clothes designer's got yeah. one as well He's a big fan. Who's the Prince Regent then? Who's going to inherit the territory that Bristol occupied previously? You know, what are the alternatives to Bristol? It's not Aston Martin. It's not Rolls-Royce, is it? I don't think there will be a successor because I think times have changed. And I I don't think there's really Mm. the place for that kind of manufacturer anymore. Mm. No. That's it. The kind of companies that are producing, you know, similarly small production runs of cars are going to be producing massively more expensive cars as at the moment. I think part of the problem is it doesn't matter how rich or eccentric you are, you still want in your modern car a sat-nav and Bluetooth and all the things that we expect now and you want them to work properly and they're largely beyond the reach of a little company in Bristol that's making sort of four cars a year or something. Yeah, yeah. And and they're very hard to just import wholesale. Well, I mean, they're very hard to buy off the shelf in the first place to a really high standard. And then they're really hard to integrate into a modern car with multiplex wiring and stuff like that. Yeah, the age of being able to do what Bristol did, which was essentially take quite a simple chassis and just sort of hand beat panels over it and install a Chrysler V8 with a little bit of tweaking on it and then sort of just wax some fine leather inside it. That's just not how it works anymore. People want the standard that they would get inside a Mercedes or a Range Rover or something like that. And that actually is really hard to do, handmade. Bristol are, in fact, almost like a dinosaur, a creature from a bygone age. I love the fact that the Bristol car company is actually more or less the same firm that was building aircraft during the First World War. The Bristol box kite predates the First World War. And that the original name of the company was the British and Colonial Aeroplane Company. Colonial. That's perfect. I can't think of a more colonial car than Bristol. I doff my hat to them. I salute them. I wave them off. I bid them farewell. But one last question. Is the brand dead? Could someone bring it back? as a new form of Bristol? I don't know. I mean, it's conceivable, I guess, that somebody could find some way to do something with it, but 
unlikely, really. I just think somebody who isn't thinking straight might try it. But if you're being brutally honest, you would say that not enough people have heard of Bristol, nor have enough respect for it, that it will be worth your while. Yeah. You've got the same problems I was just talking about. How are you going to make it compete with cars that would necessarily have to cost a fortune to be economic? You'd have to do sort of like tiny volumes to duck out of regulations. And even then, the sun's going to catch up with you, like emissions and stuff. The trouble Bristol as a car maker was always on a sort of glide slope to doom because they were using socking great V8s that it's increasingly hard to meet emissions rules with. I just think there'd come a point where they wouldn't have been able to sell any cars in Britain and they don't really sell any cars anywhere else. So they're sort of screwed by that point. Yeah, I mean, I think if you were going to do something with the brand to revive it in any way, in any viable way, you would have to be producing the kind of vehicle that wouldn't really fit with whatever the Bristol brand means. And as you say, Richard, it's actually a brand that just doesn't have enough resonance for enough people anymore for that to be probably the kind of thing that would be worth anyone's while. Okay, in that case, let's talk about a brand which we also lost very recently from, you might argue, the age of the empire and the colonies. This is a genuinely sad thing, but also something genuinely worth celebrating. I'm talking about the fact that we've lost Sterling Moss. People use the term legend, don't they? People say, oh, you're a total ledge. And my stock answer to that is no, you're not a legend because your existence is documented and verifiable. But Sterling Moss transcended that. His history is verifiable and well documented, but his exploits truly were legendary. Zog, I'm going to come to you because of the three of us, I think you're the biggest Sterling Moss fan. You must be saddened by this or are you just happy that he lived a full and rich life till he was 90? Both those things. He lived quite a life. I'm sure he doesn't have many regrets. He had a blast and he gave us all a great deal of pleasure. We weren't old enough to enjoy him racing in his prime, but even the kind of echoes of his racing days are enough to stir something in you. You know, an extraordinary man, an extraordinary career. The model I have of the Mercedes that he won the Mille Miglia in it takes pride of place in my model car collection. The man's character is, you know, kind of key to why. He was so beloved by so many people and why that was such an enduring affection for so many of us. It wasn't just how often he won, you know, 40% odd of the races that he started, I think he won something like that. Yeah, 212 of 529 starts. He was the runner-up in F1 four times. It wasn't just the statistic, the number of times that he won, it was the manner in which he won. And I think you know, he demonstrated that you don't have to have a win at all costs, a gentleman ruthless racer. attitude to win. You can win by just being damn good. He raced as a gentleman. I'm sure we you know, remember the he lost the Formula One championship one year because he stood up for Tony Brooks yeah. in a post-race mm. discussion about whether Tony Brooks should be disqualified because he'd supposedly pushed his car during the race and Moss insisted that, no, he wasn't pushing it on the track, therefore he shouldn't be disqualified and it cost him the championship. Amazing. The, the manner in which he won counted. And for me, that is enormously important because, you know, in the end, much as we love motorsport and much as it is, in a sense, a life and death thing, 
clearly. It's also frippery. It's entertainment. The manner in which our heroes pull off their exploits matters. It's not just the numbers. It's how they do it that counts. And he did it in extraordinary style. And it was tremendous to see him racing a classic Maserati at Le Mans a few years ago, towards the end of the period when he was still racing classic cars. But, you know, he was there in his old school helmet with a straight-armed style, taking it around Indianapolis. That was a great memory, and I'm very glad I saw that. I was about to say, I remember him driving an Aston DBR1 at a Legends race at Le Mans a few years ago in his famous helmet with those enormously famous long arms driving relaxed stance with such grace. And I remember being quite emotional seeing a living legend, as they say, Richard, did you ever have a conversation with him? I know you've been in the same room as him, haven't you? Yeah, I saw him speak at various things. I never got to talk to him. I've been talking to people who did. I realised quite a few friends of mine in the car world had had encounters with him, some more than others. I mean, there's someone that I know who I didn't realise how well they actually got to know him through professional reasons. But every single person, without fail, has said what a really decent bloke he was. And it connects to what you were just saying, Zog, about his decency in racing. But it didn't go away in the decades afterwards when he was a professional driver and was doing a lot more sort of personal appearances, ambassadorial work and being interviewed by people. And it sounds like he was somebody who always put the work in when he was interviewed. He wouldn't just sort of phone in the same anecdotes. He'd put some oomph into it because it sounds like he felt like people wanted something from him and he was prepared to give it which I think is a generosity of spirits that he hadn't got jaundiced well let's think when he stopped racing I mean it is decades that he then had to spend his time sort of talking about inverted commas his glory days and yeah four or five decades yeah yeah and, and it seems like he never lost a his enthusiasm for motor racing and his enthusiasm for talking about it and talking about the past but also I just got the sense from talking to people who had spent time with him that there was a great humanity and goodness to him people can become a little bit irascible and resentful as they get into old age i think perhaps particularly if you feel like you didn't get the top gong that you deserved and it sounds like there wasn't any sort of rancor with him he was just apart from else, happy to be the sterling moss that everybody wanted that sound, might sound like a criticism it's not it sounds like you know he was well aware that we wanted him to be this brilliant legendary figure and with a, with a burning passion for what he did and what others did in his field. And he managed to deliver on that into his 90s. And I just think that's actually pretty incredible. That speaks to him as a person. He had a twinkle. Yes, very much so. In his eye, right till the very end. His face smiled, his entire face smiled. Imagine being someone who, when you're pulled over by the police for going too quickly in your car and the copper says to you, who do you think you are? Sterling Moss. And being able to look at them and say, well, yes, actually I am, which I believe happened on a number of occasions. The police have just got to let you go under those circumstances. I think that is the most glorious thing. And the fact that he's got not one, but two McLaren Mercedes sort of named after him. You know, the SLR that McLaren and Mercedes built together. Yeah, there was the 722, wasn't it? The 722, yeah, because that was the time of the day that he started the Mille Miglia. And then later, the penultimate edition was the Sterling Moss edition. 
How wonderful. Those were great cars too, weren't they? Um... <laughs> I don't know. I drove the coupe one, and it had really, really horrible brakes. And, uh, and yeah, and, the braking was the problem, wouldn't they? They were cold and didn't operate until made it, it quite hard to enjoy it. Yeah, one of my favourite stories that someone told me in the, in the past couple of weeks about him was a mate of mine, his magazine editor, got to drive a Jaguar D-Type up the hill at the Goodwood Festival of Speed on a Jags Heritage car, and to his absolute horror, he stalled it on the line trying to get away. And his double horror, the car behind him contains the Sterling Moss. Oh. And so he's just like, this is the biggest embarrassment of my life. Got it to the top of the hill and was there going, still regretting what had happened at the start line. When a familiar figure bounded over to him, it's Sir Sterling himself, goes, don't worry, old boy, the clutch on these was always a bugger. Oh, <laughs> I just thought, how lovely. Didn't have to do that. But what a nice chap to do it. Yeah, what a lovely trying chap. to make a stranger yeah, feel better absolutely. for something that's obviously embarrassed him. I just thought, there you go. That's all you need to know, really, isn't it? Decent sort. Boys, to wrap this up, I have two things to say. That the world will be a poorer place for the absence, even in his old age, of Sir Sterling Moss. But that the world was a much richer place for his presence on this planet and during years that we were lucky enough to witness ourselves in some way or another you've been listening to gareth jones on speed he was zog goodbye he was richard goodbye that's it we're going to leave you with a tune and in a time when we're saying goodbye to a number of things dear to our hearts here's a song called driver's parade performed loosely in the style of the skids See ya.
Opportunities, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Oh, 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 